This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, uh, brought to you by the Ann Campaign, the Crux and the Call. And uh, Justin, it's great to be with you for another week. Good to be with you as well, Michael. This was another eventful week. Plenty of things to talk about in this uh, intersection between faith and politics. And as always, I'm ready to get to it. Yeah, there is a lot to discuss. And let's just start with one of the topics of the week. And that's what kicked off last Sunday. So two Sundays ago, everyone knows it was Franklin Graham's day of prayer for the president to protect him uh, from his enemies. And Donald Trump was on the golf course in the morning. And I saw some some tweets from folks that morning, you know, thinking, wow, isn't it something that, you know, churches across the country are supposed to be praying for him and he won't even bother to go to church. Uh, And then, of course, President Trump bothered to go to church, if not for a whole service dropping in at McLean Bible, which is uh, one of the largest churches in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, the DMV. President Trump staff uh, notified McLean minutes before arriving, uh, said that the president wanted to be prayed for, and they showed up. Uh, Donald Trump was prayed for on stage by David Platt, who's a nationally known pastor and leader. and. Then he left. Uh, Justin, there's been a lot of discourse about this uh, over the last week, deservedly so. I, you know, have my reasons that you know I think it was pretty extraordinary uh, and egregious on the, the the president and the White House's behalf how this all played out. You know, there's the conversation about what actually happened. Then there's the conversation about uh, about the conversation about what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think are the most important things that Christians have to be thinking about uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to what happened last Sunday at McLean? Yeah, well, let me start by saying this. I, I want to uh, just point out how uh, good your article was that you wrote on this in the in the Washington Post. I thought it was uh, it was great. You've been quite prolific in the last couple of weeks, man. I see an article or two from you every week, so that's great, man. I, I think at this moment, people need that voice. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, really, and on this one, really drawing on your experience staffing the president going to churches. And that's what sticks out to me. Number one, this 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 church visit is different because, number one, it was unannounced. Right. Um, Which is disrespectful on Trump's part. Uh, This is a church. They they have they you know, they have other things going on other than just waiting for you. Uh, And for the way that they came into that church, I thought was disrespectful. Um, And and it's also different because Trump is Trump. 
right? He's right. taken the presidency to an all time low. Uh, his language about women, his language about people of color and immigrants is unacceptable. And most importantly, his policies have separated families and put lives in danger. And so you do have to talk about who Trump is and, and the context of what was going on. I think that's fair. At the same time, I think uh, Pastor Platt's reputation precedes him as well. And it's a good reputation. Uh, he was caught off guard and placed in a tough situation. I thought his prayer was solid. Uh, he made it very clear who the real king was and where the real authority resided, uh, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he, he mm. you know, he's very clear about that. Now, I think what really got what really set people off was the applause afterwards. Now, he doesn't obviously doesn't control that. Uh, but the applause afterwards and then having Trump on stage in general is what people set people off. Um, yeah. And I would have liked him to challenge Trump more. I think that would have been great and or just not have him on stage at all. Uh, I don't have a problem with people using this as a teaching moment to say, hey, white evangelicals or otherwise, you need to learn from this situation and be prepared for this situation, uh, you know, uh, the next time. And Platt isn't above critique himself. Right. But what gets me on this one is the social media grandstanding, which is worth pr pretty much nothing. Uh, the strident tweets and the insinuation that he was unfaithful. And I think we need to be clear on what we're talking about here. When you critique what happened, are you saying that he was unfaithful or are you saying that ideally this could have been done better? Hmm. And I think we make a mistake when we're not clear on what we're saying. Now, some people were clear on social media that he was being unfaithful. That goes too far in, 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 in my judgment. Um, pastors pray. They pray for people. That's what they do. And yep. he did his job in that regard. And don't underestimate the power of a positive aspirational prayer. Right. He right. was asking Trump to do the right thing. Is that worth nothing because it wasn't negative and it didn't you know, it didn't come at him the way that you wanted it to. Nah, let's not look overlook the power of the positive prayer and, and encouraging him to do better. In no way did it did it. I do. I think that it supported anything negative that Trump had done. Right. Um and also, I'm not aware of anything in the Bible that required Platt to pray an imprecatory prayer at that very moment or otherwise mm -hmm. he was being unfaithful. Right. So right. let's be very clear. Is this unfaithful or is this just ideally it could have been better? I think ideally it could have been better uh, in, in a lot of different ways. And Trump opponents have to make sure that we're not, you know, and Trump opponents and, and social justice, justice oriented folks need to make sure that we're not being legalistic either. Right. Hmm. Um, right. Platt shouldn't allow himself to be used for a photo op. I, I'm with yeah. that all day. And I would like to help any pastor with policies to help them avoid that. I think most pastors would appreciate that. Yeah. But I'm not sure that he should be. That should be his number one concern. Right. When he's a, is his number one concern to say, oh, somebody could take this out of context. Sure, they could. It seemed like his number one concern was was having a prayer that was faithful and that represented in that represented his beliefs. So so let's just keep those things in mind. The other thing I would say is a pastor praying for somebody on stage or not is not an endorsement. Somebody could possibly assume that it was. Sure, they could. But that's ignorant. Right. So that's an ignorant assumption. So when people say, oh, it was a photo op, somebody could see you up there praying with them like you're supporting. Well, that's ignorant. People pray. Right. Pastors pray for everybody. They pray for all kind of people that come up, whether it's on stage or otherwise. Anybody that knows anything about prayer needs it. Knows that it has nothing to do with any type of endorsement. So I think we need to be we need to be a little bit uh, more honest about that. But uh, by all means, use this as a teaching moment. 
and people who don't and, you know, pastors who don't have policies or don't know how they would react when they have a church where maybe some people did support Trump, maybe others didn't support Trump. That's not an easy situation, but I think it would behoove president, I mean, uh, pastors to think that through before something like that could happen to them and have policies that could be helpful for them. Yeah, Justin, so much that you said there is absolutely key. I, I mean, I think one thing that this exposes again is we do have a bit of a crisis of authority in Protestantism generally, where, you know, it was clear the members of that congregation did not, appro- uh, some members of the congregation there did not approach it with the same sense of sobriety that that Platt did. And so, like, th- there's just that problem. And, and we know that that lives itself out politically. We know that it lives its, itself out in all kinds of theological where, ways where uh, p- people understand what the pastor is teaching, but just don't think it applies to them or don't think it's essential. And, and so that, that's a key thing. The second part is this idea, uh, you know, David Platt should have been much more prophetic. Well, what does prophetic look like? A prophetic looks like he, he should have said everything that I've been saying <laughs> in, in just the way I want to say it. Like like when I look at uh, those speaking prophetically in in scripture, it's folks like like the audience isn't too thrilled to hear what what they what they have to say, and so we just need to be really really careful about not, especially using sort of religious mandates to try and get a political dig in on the president or wish that someone else had. And I get that sentiment. I, I mean, I wrote in my, I wrote in my piece, you know, uh, the, the idea of David Platt, you know, rejecting Trump at the door of the church, like p- politically that appeals to me a great deal. I, you know, there's a part of me that's like, man, what a, what a, what a symbol that would be. Uh, on, on the other hand, we just need to be cognizant of, of what happened here. And, and what I didn't like so much, I agree that there, there's a critique to be uh, made of just how churches handle politician visits. I think that churches need help. Let, let's remember that in seminary, pastors get trained for a whole lot. They don't get trained, I think, uh, unfortunately so, for political theology and certainly not for dealing with civic leaders uh, that are going to be uh, coming through their churches, whether they're presidents or council members, and I think we need to uh, we we need to help with that and make sure that that's corrected. But 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 just in this, what I didn't like was this was clearly a premeditated, extraordinary move by President Trump and his staff to bombard a church like this in a way that, as I described in my article, is co- completely unprecedented. Typically, at, at the very least. And if there's a, uh, an outstanding relationship there, the, the pastor will get at least a day's heads up. Now, for the first time, the president's visiting a church. Usually there's a week of secret service visits, planning. The pastor has a chance to talk with his uh, vestry or his board or whatever. Like there's a reason that Trump and his White House didn't do that because they knew that, according to David Platt's letter and the subtext of it, I don't think they, they would have been invited in. I, it, from Platt's letter, it's, it seemed pretty clear to me his inference that if he had been given time to say no, he would have said no. And so we, we just need to be careful that every time some politician does something, that we're not using it as an opportunity to beat up on one another, 
but uh, not enough people, in my view, were pointing out just how outrageous and how much of a intrusion of the state into the church this incident represented. And and I wish that more people were focused uh, on that as opposed to you know putting themselves in 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 plat shoes and saying, oh, I, I would have really stood up to. Trump and his his policies. I guess the last thing I'd say on that, Justin, is we consistently talk about not wanting pastors to be politicians and not wanting pastors to pose as if they have political knowledge when they don't. And I think there's there's some real wisdom in that. I think that we say that because in the past we've seen pastors say incorrect things, put the stamp of their authority on politics rather than scripture and all the confusion that that leads to. Uh, and so, uh, look, if, if Platt would have launched into some kind of policy assault on Trump, uh, we'd all be sitting here talking about, oh, he didn't phrase that exactly right. Oh, he talked, right. About, right. He talked about child separation and he talked about uh, the things President has said about various countries and the things that President Trump has said about women. But, but he didn't mention... He didn't mention these policies. He didn't mention the tariffs. He didn't mention, uh, you, you know, like at, at some point, I think Platt not having the time to prepare, uh, not being able to, to, to pray about it, to make sure he was saying exactly what he wanted to say. Those are just all things that needs need to be considered. No, that's a good point. I mean, how much does Platt pay attention to the specifics? And if he gets out in front of himself and says something that he shouldn't have said, that can be an issue, too. So, again, I'm all for I'm all for the critiques. Ideally, it could have been better. I don't think he was unfaithful. And if we step back for a second, this moment in the long run probably didn't change a whole lot either way. Right. So I doubt there's a few. I doubt there's many people who were not going to support Trump. Then they saw him on stage getting prayed for. And now they're going to support him. Right. I think the folks Trump opponents, I think we can sometimes feel like if we don't use every opportunity to to go at him in every way, then we're losing something. And it's, it's just not the case. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, people are going to have to be informed. We're going to have to we're going to have to pray on it, you know, keep people uh, abreast of what's going on and go from there. But this wasn't the end of the world. And again, Christians, Twitter is not the best place to, uh, to to for these type of back and forth. If, if you have an issue, write an article, uh, do it, you know, do a longer video, but don't assume uh, too quickly how you would react in that position. And, and also, let's not romanticize what other churches do either. Um, mm-hmm. I've been around politics a lot. I've seen every type of church, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, handle pol- political situations really poorly. I mean, really, really poorly. Um, so, so oh, you know, one church would definitely do this. Uh, for one, they're not a monolith. Uh, so, I mean, that sounds good, but I know black churches that are down the street from each other that react to those things extremely differently. Uh, so they're not they're not all the same. And I think we should keep that in mind. This is a different case. I get it. Trump is different because of who he is and what he's done. But still, uh, we need to we need to make sure that we're maintaining who we are and that we're treating other brothers and sisters in a way that is constructive rather than just trying to tear folks down. Yeah. All right. Well, we have much more to discuss. I, I think that conversation, hopefully, you know, as it moves on, as you said, Justin, we'll evolve into, uh, you know, how do we as a church think about dealing with elected leaders and making sure that the church leaves these situations empowered rather than disempowered, which which I think, you know, one thing that could be said is absolutely, you know, the fact that Platt had to issue a letter the evening after this shows that, <laughs> shows that this was not a good experience for the church 
and I care and I'm frustrated deeply, about, you know, about that. And so hopefully we can talk about uh, as uh, maybe on this podcast, but but more generally as the church, you know, uh, what is the best way to to deal with these kinds of things? And, and folks will likely see something from the end campaign written to help pastors and churches with those type of policies and just thinking it through. So so keep an eye out for that. All right, folks, when we get back, we'll talk Mexico and tariffs, and we'll talk about Biden's flip-flop, flip-flop over the last week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, we've been talking quite a bit about tariffs over the last few months, primarily in relation to China, but also it's a conversation around the EU. And now Trump has brought up the use of tariffs on Mexico to pressure the country to do more on immigration enforcement than it has been. The conservative critique, and now interestingly, the progressive, uh, we're seeing Democrats argue that tariffs are essentially a tax on the American people uh, and that Trump's strategy of tariffs will result in economic losses for the American people. Trump, even today, even on Monday, uh, was not backing off this strategy, which he believes is, you know, soliciting some, some wins for the country. One of those wins, he suggested that Mexico made commitments on border security in light of these, in light of these tariffs. Uh, it has been reported since that Mexico made these commitments months ago. Uh, but 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 Trump is, uh, Justin, here's my thought, not on tariffs broadly, but on this strategy with Mexico and the political side of it, which is that heading into an election, Trump's policies have not been able to stem the trouble at the border. And I've been increasingly hearing from friends, but also in reported stories, people alleging that uh, the immigration uh, is driven by some maleficent force that they cannot name, that this is actually some kind of coordinated plot to you know, invade America or to do some, something uh, with ill will. You know, Trump wanting to place blame on uh, Mexico, Trump wanting to obviously place blame on Democrats is is really him trying to set up, in my view, the ability to say, look, I didn't get the number one thing that I said I was going to get done done. Uh, but it, it wasn't my fault. It was all these various players and actors standing in the way. And, and politically, the tariff piece seems to be of a piece with that. Yeah, tr- Trump is Trump is speaking to his base here. Uh, he's letting them know I still care about the issue that you you, you guys hold and sometimes the highest regard uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's him talking to his base. And anything that has to do with Trump and immigration, he's just not going to get the benefit of the doubt on. Nor does he deserve to get the benefit of the doubt on anything. Right. As a negotiator, in general, away from the, aside from this issue a little bit, as a negotiator, I understand using the leverage that you have, right? Okay. If, if a threat of tariffs may get Mexico to do something you need them to do, then 
I understand that as a general proposition. Right. Right. Um, and I think sometimes when Trump uses those kind of threats, people are just re- overreact in other circumstances when it comes to tariffs to say, oh, no, you can't. Well, well sometimes you're just you know, you're just seeing how they're going to respond to it. Right. And sometimes that is part of negotiation and, and putting the uh, the country in a better position uh, sometimes. So we, we have to keep that in mind. The thing here with Trump is, you know, that he's really just speaking to his base. And at the end of the day, the only uh, the only point that I think is that's being made that is actually substantive is Mexico could do more. Right. So aside from all right. the terrible right, things right, right. that Trump is doing on the border, which none of it is justified by what Mexico or Central America are doing or aren't doing, they actually could do more. And if we're really concerned about what's going on at the border and we don't think it's safe, we actually should want me- uh, Mexico to do more. Right. So if Trump was responsible if we knew Trump was, you know, working in good faith, we might actually say, hey, we do need them to do a little more. Because when you talk about families getting separated, mm. people placed in unhealthy situations, well, when they're not doing anything about it, that becomes problematic. Right. When they're just saying, hey, put it on Trump, they'll blame Trump anyway. That's not OK. The problem is we don't have a president with the credibility or who's working in good faith for people even to say that, you know, that that makes sense that we would try to get them to do more. So it's, it's a tough situation made tough because of, again, Trump being Trump, not using it as a political tool uh, really to speak to his base instead of caring about the people that are on the border and trying to make that situation better, which is what everybody should be concerned about. And, and that's the tough part of it. Yeah, I also think and, you know, it's not these tariffs aren't necessarily oppressive at this point, although the idea is that the proposal with the tariffs is that the pressure would increase as time went on if Mexico didn't meet Trump's expectations. Uh, under Understanding that these aren't, we aren't getting into draconian uh, sort of economic, you know, like, you know, what was happening with Iran uh, at some point. But at, at the same time, you know, I think there are a lot of people who think that this is a time, you know, when we talk about carrots and sticks, that this is not a time for sticks when it comes to Mexico that is dealing with a historic influx of migrants from other countries, from Venezuela, from uh, Guatemala, you know, undermining Mexico economically, uh, and trying to put economic pressure on them at a time when they're already strained, I think to some people strikes them, even if they don't know all the details, even if they're not in the weeds, you know, there's this question of like, is this really the the right, right approach? Isn't this the time? You know, there's been conversation about something like a, like a Marshall plan for Latin America. And so you have these two very different visions of what it will look like to address this border problem. Those who are saying, actually, we need to be, you know, putting as much aid as possible uh, into this region, and and then then you have Trump actually saying, actually, they have the capacity to do more, and they're just not doing it, and that's a, a, a debate that's going to result in quite a bit of tension. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that that's a question that has to be asked. And we as American people have to make sure, number one, that we are holding uh, Trump responsible for what he's doing and not doing down there, but also investigating whether more can be done. I've heard from credible so- sources that there probably could be more done on those sides. And if because my, my thing is that my, my biggest issue are the people down there. Right. And if the people down there are being placed in terrible circumstances, everybody needs to be doing everything they can do to keep those people out of that situation. And so I think it's fair to ask that asking it with Trump is just a, a lost cause. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk about a Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, and uh, what happened with his campaign over the last week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, Justin, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, we've talked about the Hyde Amendment before on this show, but just to recap for folks, the Hyde Amendment is uh, a rider that gets attached to appropriations bills uh, to prevent federal funding for abortion. The Hyde Amendment was basically the first bipartisan response to Roe v. Wade. And so it's been basically policy for the country since since the 1970s that federal funds, the taxpayer dollars, don't go towards abortion. Now, there's an exception in that for rape, incest, and uh, life of the mother. Uh, over time, the exceptions have changed a bit, but but that's basically where where we are. It's bipartisan policy that had been supported by Democrats and Republicans up until, in terms of party platform, 2016. 2016 was the first uh, first time that Hyde was, that repeal of Hyde was put on the Democratic platform, something that uh, the Clinton campaign pushed for, as we've talked about before on the show, I, I believe it's a significant reason she lost. And so f- fast forward to 2020, and we have a field of candidates that in response to the laws that we've seen passing in Alabama, and we talked about uh, that last week, if you want to go back and hear about some of these state laws that are passing. But Democrats are feeling both uh, defensive in in the sense that they feel like things are happening that they can't stop, uh, but that's also, you know, causing a reciprocal aggression. We're seeing that in Illinois, where a abortion rights bill passed that was, in terms of many analysis, even more aggressive than what we saw in New York. Uh, we're also seeing it with 2020 candidates making all kinds of commitments for how they're going to stop these state laws from moving forward, how they're going to expand access to abortion if they're president and to to get to Joe Biden, Joe Biden is someone who was pro-life in the 70s and throughout his career has taken what he's called a middle-of-the-road approach to, to this issue. He wrote about it even as late in his, as his 2007 book when he ran for president in 2008. He was clear that he supported restrictions on abortion. He was uh, clear that he personally opposed abortion. What happened was, uh, well, a few things have happened. A few weeks ago, an ACLU activist asked Joe Biden in a rope line whether he supported Hyde or supported repeal of Hyde. And Biden said in that rope line, and that this exchange was recorded, that it had to go. He said, yes, I'd repeal it. His campaign later clarified or tried to say that uh, he had misheard the activist. Joe Biden thought the activist was talking about the Mexico City policy, which talks about uh, federal funds overseas. So then uh, last week, Joe Biden's campaign confirms that the vice president 
uh, does still support Hyde. And this causes just on Twitter, at least, and that's an important piece of this, on Twitter and among pro-choice groups created a, a really profound backlash. Or again, at least it seemed that way. So people were saying that this should disqualify him from the Democratic nomination. NARAL, Planned Parenthood, all had statements out. Some of the reporting has suggested that some of Biden's own staff were pressuring him to change his view. Alyssa Milano, the actress, got on the phone with Biden's campaign manager to pressure uh, him. And within about 36 hours, give or take a few, Joe Biden in Atlanta uh, said that he no longer could support Hyde, in essence, because Republican attacks on abortion had become too significant. And if, if we support health care access, and, uh, folks, I'm just a messenger. He said if we support health care access, then Hyde has to be is contrary to that. He got praise from some quarters. People like David Axelrod, who was the, the head messaging guy and strategic guy for Barack Obama's winning campaign, said that it was that while Biden's campaign rollout was perfect, that this flip flop didn't show a lot of uh, thoughtfulness. And, and I uh, agree with that. Uh, I'll just say, Justin, I'm, I'm just very disappointed. I'm disappointed for for a couple of reasons. I'm, I'm disappointed because morally, I think it's the wrong stance. And we could talk about we could talk about why the Hyde Amendment has been important policy over the last forty years. But I'll also say I'm disappointed because because the general public's not with Biden on this one. Uh, the last poll that we could take seriously on this issue uh, showed the majority of Americans are actually opposed to federal funding for abortion. This is a this is a Democratic primary. Uh, issue that unfortunately has now put Biden on the record uh, in a way that's that's contrary to the majority of the American public in a way that President Trump is going to take advantage of in 2020. I'll leave it there for, for now for my thoughts, but I, Justin, we've been talking about this over the, over the last week and, and following it. Uh, his flip wasn't unexpected. I was a little surprised just how quickly, just how quickly it came and what kind of president it sets up for the rest of this campaign when there are going to be a lot of dings and hits on Biden's record because he has one. Justin, do you think, what do you think how Biden navigated this? What what does it say about his campaign? What does it say about the state of the Democratic Party in general? Ah, Joe, (laughs) Joe, Joe, Joe. What, what, What are we doing here, Joe? You know, who are we? You know, what do we stand uh, for here, Joe? Right. Before before, before Joe made this flip flop, um, I had just done an interview with The New York Times about pro-life Democrats and said that one of the bright spots was that Biden was staying strong on the Hyde Amendment. Yeah. Uh, or that he he actually wasn't staying that strong because he had flip flop already. But you get the point. In, in part, trying to hoping that, you know, folks would see that and it would be encouragement for them, because, as you said, only 30 some percent or whatever of people support taking the Hyde Amendment out. So it's not, you know, um, something that's helpful. And, and almost as soon as that came out of my mouth, <laughs> he switched up on us. Yeah, almost. As, and I had a feeling that it could happen and that it probably would happen. I mean, that's especially in this Democratic primary. That's just how it goes. When some when the majority of folks go to the left, everybody goes to the left. I guess that's where it's they feel safest at. But but let me say this. And this is this is what I think the problem for his campaign is right now. 
let's be clear. Joe Biden is leading right now, number one, because he was Barack Obama's vice president. Also, because people feel they can trust him. And even if he makes mistakes or says the wrong thing, there's a level of trust and consistency there. Mm. And lastly, because people feel like you're taking more of the middle road. That's right. Um, if you uh, if if Biden allows his opponents and the far left interest groups to push him all the way to the left on all these issues, what's the appeal? Right. The campaign. I don't I mean, I think the rollout was cool, but the campaign in general has not been that stellar. It's not like he's just selling people and he has the best policy and all this other stuff. No, he's he's playing like a front runner. Right. If somebody comes up with a good idea, he'll take a piece of that idea. He's staying out of the way, trying not to make mistakes. He's I don't think he's capable of running a winning campaign. I think he's capable of being who people can trust. And getting in office because everybody else is so far, far off of where the American people are. Mm. That's how he wins. If he allows these folks to put him on the same, if he allows them to put him on the same plane with everybody else and he actually has to win this and win a, win a runny, you know, win the campaign based on what he's doing, what his campaign is doing. I'm not sure he can do that. Right. At this point, you know, for a lot of dis- different reasons, I think he will struggle uh, it's a long campaign. There's a lot going on. And then there's just some really, really good politicians out there. Now, Joe Biden's a great politician, but I don't. But he's been in this situation before. That's right. And he hasn't won before. I'm not confident that he can win it uh, outright if it's just, you know, if, if everything is all things being equal. Right. An e- equal plane. And so he's putting himself back on that equal plane really for reasons that don't make a lot of sense. I think one of the things that's troubling to me in his campaign is that you have people in your campaign that get a call from a far left interest group and are willing to lobby you that hard to change your opinion. That's, that's a huge, like he, he's in trouble. When you come on my campaign, you, you accept who I am. And if you don't accept who I am and where I've stood on the issue for years and years and years on something like that, where I'm with mostly American people, you probably don't need to be on my campaign. Don't come to me with some stuff that you heard from this far left interest group in my campaign. Yep. Like that, that, that is, that's problematic, but it also shows you can't even Democrat candidates can't even get campaign staff that aren't so indoctrinated that they can't see that where he was was actually the best position when it comes to where the American people are and for the campaign. So you got folks so indoctrinated in in this political class, you know, uh, in this consultant class that you end up with in situations like this. And it also shows that they're so far off from where the American people are. And I can't tell that they even care. All right. So so he's running into several different issues just just off the fact that he's getting this from his campaign. Then the other thing that was disappointing to me was apparently Chris Coons was one of the people that lobbied him yep. uh, on this stance. Chris Coons is somebody, Senator Chris Coons is somebody who's been on this show, but that doesn't protect you from being critiqued. I think he was wrong for that. I'm very disappointed in Chris Coons for not only, you know, to be a Christian and to say, okay, well, I'm against it personally or whatever, but okay, that's one thing. To be the lobbyist for removing the Hyde, the Hyde Amendment. Right. Um, really makes it hard for me to see where your faith on this particular issue is really playing any role in the conversation. Uh, so that was that was really disappointing to see. But at the end of the day, the choice was was Biden. He's the he's the presidential candidate and he got chumped, you know, by by the far left. And 
I think that's going to really hurt his campaign, and it should hurt his campaign. What What else are you were you thinking of, Michael? Well, no, I I, th- I think you said it. It's uh, <laughs> they effectively the field effectively moved Biden closer to them and to play in their game. If Biden is going to be chasing after that side of the party, there are better candidates that fit that. Like even like I would say there are better candidates that fit that. Like if Biden's not going to support Hyde anymore, if he's going to support, he, he recently said the Equality Act would be his number one priority as president. Now, we've talked on this show before how important it is that basic civil uh, civil rights for LGBT folks are, are, are granted. It's also important that voting rights are protected. It's also important that we uh, deal with immigration. And, and so... Like if that's where he's going, then I think Elizabeth Warren is a better a better candidate. If 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 that's what the field is shaping up to be, and what the Democratic Party like Elizabeth Warren's been like, if we need creative, progressive policy ideas, then Biden's not that not that. Person. I'm gonna take it a step further. I'm gonna take it a step further. If your politics is just like everybody else on all these social issues, you don't want it with Elizabeth Warren. If, if, if your issues are the same and all you got is who's going to debate it better and who's going to be more thorough, you don't want it with Elizabeth Warren. You don't want it. You don't want it from Buttigieg. You don't want it from a lot of these folks. <laughs> That's not where you want to go right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. And, and honestly, the, the reason that this is so disappointing is that it's another example of a bigger trend that, Michael, I know you're familiar with, mm. which is the continual erosion of moral standards when it comes to the far left sacred calves, Mm. right? Democrats with more traditional or centered views on these social issues have seen this story ad nauseum over the past decade, right? Far left academics and advocate uh, activists uh, pushing the party further and further to the left on every social issue from uh, sexual ethics, abortion, gender identity, you name it. And our progressive peers, and this was not necessarily our peers, but our people in the party, uh, not just going along with it, but acting like it's a natural progress, you know, right. progression of history, right? Which it isn't, you know, promoting and defending it like that's where they always stood. If most progressives <laughs> took a moment, I mean, seriously, if most progressives took a moment to think back to where they stood on these social issues 10 years ago, they'd find that they're 50 paces, 50 steps to the left on every issue, right? Yeah, they stand where the party stands on the issue, and it's almost like they don't recognize it or don't see it. And here's the thing that's crazy, Justin, is if you ask them, these are this is the worst time for their own causes on on all these issues. So, so it's not like this strategy is going gangbusters for them. So then you start to ask, well, well, if if actual progress isn't what's driving this, then, then what is? What kind of financial incentives are there in the system? What, how has the debate changed? And it's, it's, a, it's disheartening. It really is disheartening. And then the other thing I'd say, Justin, is they aren't laying their bodies down on, on poverty like this. You know? Like, so, so, so much of the justification on the Hyde, uh, on the Hyde flip was on healthcare access for Poor folks. I was I was just glad to hear hear these candidates talk about poor folks because apparently it it takes it takes this issue for people to talk explicitly about those who are low income and poor. 
But here's part of the problem, though, Michael. When you talk about it only in reference to this issue, it seems like you're using it as a pawn. Well, that's exactly right. right. You, that's exactly if, right. If you're only talking about poverty because it connects and helps you with this Hyde Amendment conversation or with abortion conversation, or what I hate the most, you use African Americans and people of color when you want to talk about the Hyde Amendment. But when it comes about other issues, you're real slow to say something. Uh-huh. You're using that to push forward something that has nothing to do with us. Yes. Uh huh. And, and I have a problem with uh, the black political class and others who are so ready to allow folks to do that. That's right. That's ser- I mean, it's just seriously problematic. And I'll just say this. I know you were I, I'm watching people on social media who I know supported the Hyde Amendment just a couple years ago. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm watching them act like suggesting any abortion restrictions is just blasphemy. Uh huh. These are smart people who are following behind false narratives, oversimplified, oversimplified and played out talking points that cause them to believe that they're on the right side of everything simply if they're opposing everything that white male evangelicals stand for. Mm. And that is a dangerously elementary political analysis. That, that's what I call tic-tac-toe politics. And we talked about it last week. What you believe and the truth of something has nothing to do where you're, with where your opponent stands on that issue. So if you're motivated or, where, or if you're, all your policy is based on being the opposite of somebody else, that's how you create bad policy. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll turn it over. I just want to say it is really sad, especially when you see Christians doing this. Because they think they're being enlightened and historically progressive when really they're just supporting the kind of permissive and brutal culture that Christianity sought to dismantle in the Roman Empire 2000 years ago. There's Mm. nothing progressive about it. There's nothing new about this stuff. It doesn't make you enlightened. Think it through based on your convictions. Yeah. Well, well, just I, I mean, I think just from there, you know, what can listeners do to push back on, you know, these pressures that are coming from every which way on their politics, on uh, on their allegiances? You know, it seems increasingly impossible. It seems increasingly that our imaginations are becoming limited for what it looks like to be faithful in politics, what what advice do you have for folks or what, what do you have to offer on that? For one, I would say as much as you can engage some of the and campaigns co- content, because that's exactly what we're here to do. So I think the content helps people wade through all these different pressures and all that stuff to see the force from the trees. The other thing is getting together with like minded believers and others, because it's always easier to handle those type of pressures in a group. Yeah. It is very hard to do that in isolation. And part of the, and that's part of the reason even with even with Biden when you got folks in your campaign that are coming at you, that makes it very hard but for the rest of us especially get in a group of like-minded folks who can encourage you, who can embolden you to stand faithfully where you really should be. But you got to read and you got to read people who help you see through the talking points and the spin so you can get to the real issues outside of, you know, what you know, all this, all this data and uh, stuff that folks are throwing out that can really be misleading. Mm. Uh, and so those would be my two, my, my two points, read the right people, uh, be able to see through uh, what's going on, but also get in a group of people who can help you uh, go through it and, and fill in any blind spots that you might have. Yeah. And that, you know, I know we're really excited at the end of this month uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, we're going to be, holding a launch event for 
something we call Hamer Democrats. Now, this is in partnership with a friend of the podcast, C.J. Rhodes, Pastor Pastor Rhodes in Jackson. We're going to be joined by Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner, which we're just honored and thrilled about, and by an array of Christian leaders that will be honoring both the legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer, but also talking about how Fannie Lou Hamer can inspire us in this moment to be people who are politically involved, even institutionally involved in political parties, and yet have a faithful and distinct witness. Uh, Just I know this is something you've been working on for a long time. Uh, what, What did people need to know about Hamer Democrats? First, I would say it's not even an endorsement of a party. Right. Um, it's not about that at all. It's about a more faithful stance in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you understand what the Hamer Democrats are really about, about, you'll see that. But it's an identity thing, right? It's like, who who are you? What is your identity? Is your identity about being a Democrat? Is your identity about being Republican? Or are you a Christian who happens to be a Democrat or a Christian who happens to be a Republican? And just helping Christians see through that, because I think when our identity becomes our party, when our party is part of our identity, then we will go where the party leads us because it seems that's the way things should go. Right. There's no real reason to question it. Uh, we cannot allow ourselves to be indoctrinated like that. And the um, the Hamer Democrat concept, we believe, will help help folks with that. And, and we'll be coming. There'll be a Republican kind of side to that as well. And, and we're ready for this conversation. We think a lot of people are excited about what this what this could mean. So, folks, you can go to HamerDemocrats.com or HamerDemocrats.org. There will be a Facebook live event that uh, is taking place on Monday, June 10th. By the time y'all hear this, the, the event will be recording. You'll be able to just uh, go and see it. That, that'll that be on the Ann Campaign page, Facebook page. And, you know, if, if you follow us on Twitter, then uh, we'll be sending it out there. And then, hey, we'd urge you, we'd invite you to join us in Jackson on June 29th. And there will be uh, more news about that. Uh, in the coming weeks, but uh, we know we think that this could be a, a critical moment. This could be a banner moment, and especially heading into 2020, uh, we need to make sure that we have an identity that's distinct, that is grounded in history, uh, and frankly, that is you know fueled by the saints, people. Uh, and so we're excited uh, about the launch of Hamer Democrats. And again, shout out to uh, C.J. Rhodes, uh, who's who's just been so integral in all of this. Justin, I think that's all we have uh, for this week. You know, I think I just want to note, we could have taken up a whole episode with just one of the topics that we discussed. There's much more to right. be said. We want to keep the conversation going, but but it was important to hit sort of all those moments. Uh, Justin, anything to close down? Well, let me just ask you this. Do you think the finals are going to be over by the time this, this podcast comes out? What, what's your What's your prediction? <laughs> I think Golden State has one or two more left in them, but I, I, I am going to say I think the Raptors uh, and Kawhi have shown that this is their championship to wow. lose. Uh, so it'll still be going on by the time wow. we come back. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, you know, it always is tricky though. Uh, it it sounds like KD may come back for this game on Monday for uh, for Game Five. You know, it's always tricky. Sometimes when these players come back, now, right, he's maybe the best player in the league right now, so it's a bit different. But sometimes when these top players come back, uh, 
they're a little rusty and things don't go as well as they should. The, the, the team chemistry isn't there. And so, you know, I think any fan in their right mind has to be happy that, that KD is, is potentially coming back, but there could be a, could be a downside to that for a team that's as, um, uh, you know, that, that relies on its chemistry being tight, uh, you know, as much as Golden State. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for tonight's game and excited to see if, if Golden State can, uh, can fight back, uh, you know, in a similar way that LeBron did uh, to, to them. So it's going to be exciting. It is going to be exciting. I hope I can make it. I'm actually flying to D.C. tonight. I'll be uh, giving the response to a book written by Peter Wayner called The Death of Politics, a really good book that's going to come out. I'll be giving the Democrat response to it. And so that should be a good time uh, happening tomorrow. Well, I guess it won't be tomorrow. Now it'll be Tuesday of this week. So we'll let you know how that goes when we get back. Well, I'll be there. I'm excited to see it's going to be a great event. Folks, thanks for listening. Leave a review on iTunes. Be in touch with us on social. Until next week, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed one. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.